The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today's show is going to change the way you think about adolescence and the adolescence in your life. Our guest experts are Professor Barbara Nadison Horowitz and science journalist Catherine Bowers. They'll be drawing upon and discussing their new and really amazing book, Wildhood, the epic journal from adolescence to adulthood in humans and other animals. As you will hear, adolescents, be they the teens who at this very moment are on devices in your home, or the animals across the globe have striking similarities in their physical and emotional journey from being juveniles to adults. Dr. Barbara Naderson Horowitz is a visiting professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, a professor of medicine in the UCLA Division of Cardiology, and is the president of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. Catherine Bowers is a science journalist who has taught courses both at UCLA and at Harvard. A future tense fellow at New York, New America, and Washington, she was previously an editor at Zocolo Public Square in LA, a staff editor at The Atlantic, and a writer-producer for CNN International in London. Their previous book, Zubiquity was a New York Times bestseller, a Discover Magazine's best book of 2012, and a finalist for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Dr. Barbara Nadison Horowitz and Catherine Bowers, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. So let's start with the title. The title of the book is Wildhood. Tell us about that. Yes, well, this is Barbara. Catherine and I um, spent over five years studying the lives of wild animal adolescents to learn more about why human adolescence can be so difficult. And um, along the way, we learned so much um, about what keeps animals safe uh, during adolescence, what makes them, you know, do better as adults. Um, and we realized that we needed a term to describe the commonalities across species of adolescence. And so the term wildhood, which is the phase of life between childhood and adulthood across species, um, was born. And so wildhood became not only that, that phase of life, but the title of the book. Mm. And we also you- like how the term wildhood not only puts the difference between um, childhood and adulthood, but it also describes a kind of a like a tribe, a group of people, if you think of sisterhood or... Um, or, uh, you know, knighthood, that, though, that it describes both a group of people and the state of being a member of that group. Mm. I think at one point you say this group, as you say, this tribe has, do you call it a horizontal identity? Did you, did you describe them that way? Right, we did. So there are, there are vertical identities and horizontal identities, and this is, um, this is um, a concept um, that, 
that really resonated with us because the idea that, that an animal in a phase of life might have something in common with another animal just being in that same phase of life. So if you think about an infant um, ko- koala, let's say, an infant koala and a human infant, um, they both are trying to you know, um, get to the breast and, and suck milk and, and keep their bodies warm. So they have a lot in common with each other and maybe more in common with each other than they might have with older members of, of their group of koalas or humans. And we similarly were wondering whether there might be a similar horizontal identity, a connection between animals of all species going through adolescence. Mm-hmm. And, now you just, just, and the dangers that they all face at that time of life. And we just wanted to, to sort of... Um, shine a spotlight on, on the fact that, um, that this phase of life is universal across species. There's sometimes we're told that adolescence is uniquely human, but the idea that it is shared by you know, f- fruit flies and blue whales and um, giraffes and human beings is uh, a really important way for us to see how vulnerable and important it is and also how, um, how shared and common the dangers and the joys of it are. Yeah, some of the similarities were just startling, and I know we're going to talk about them. Now, you break the book up into four sections, each of which represents one of the four challenges that those those humans and the creatures in wildhood face. Let's talk about those four and how you divided the book up and connected it with an animal. Well, we, we spent many years studying many different kinds of animals, and um, we were using, we, we developed a method to um, organize what was happening in their lives and try to um, synthesize it and understand it. And we realized uh, over time that there were four, really four tests that shaped the destiny of every adolescent on planet Earth. And those tests were, number one, could the adolescent learn to keep him or herself safe. The second lesson was, would they be able to learn to socialize and understand the importance of status in their groups and, and how the rules of their groups would impact their lives? And the third test, would could they learn to communicate sexually? Could they learn to express what um, they were interested in and understand what other animals were saying back to them? And finally, the final test is, could they learn to be self-reliant and independent? And how those four tests, um, how they performed on those four truly high-stakes tests determined the outcome in, for, for every species that we looked at. Mm-hmm. So for the first area, and the first test is safety, and you invite us to know about Ursula, a naive king penguin, as you call her. Uh, maybe tell our guests a little bit about her, and then let's talk about be, being predator naive. You say adolescence, that's that first um, safety area, or predator naive. Let's talk about predator naive and learning about predators also. Okay, well, I'll tell you a little bit about um, the, the character Ursula, and then I think I'll pass, pass it along to Catherine uh, for the predator naive explanation. But one of the things that we um, did uh, in our research is that we we, were, we wanted to tell the stories of true wild animal adolescents. These were actual individuals. And so we found groups of wildlife biologists that were tracking groups of animals using either radio collar tracking or GPS. And we went into their research, and we were able to, um, from their data, 
tell the stories of these four adolescents in the book. And Ursula was, um, as you said, a king penguin who uh, was born on South Georgia Island, uh, which is several thousand kilometers from off of Antarctica. And one day, along with her cohort, her peers, she um, left the island where she was born and walked into the icy ocean, you know, off Antarctica. And um, at that moment, she was in great danger. And um, her story has lots to inform us about human adolescence. And I'll pass it off to Catherine. Yes, so um, so th- this is part of their, their normal, what's called dispersal, when uh, young animals leave the nest and head out into the world alone, um, and, or as Barbara said, often in groups, sort of like grad- a graduating class of um, particular animals. So Ursula went off with her graduating class of mm-hmm. other penguins and um, went immediately into uh, this area of danger because there are leopard seals that patrol the coastline all around South Georgia Island where she was leaving. And uh, leopard seals are these amazing creatures with jaws that can um, that could bite a basketball if they had to. So, um, so you know, these, these young penguins go out. They don't know how to swim. They've never before been in the water, and they have to suddenly, uh, essentially in the most literal sense, sink or swim. Um, and this is not just a, an issue for king penguins. There are many, many animals, um, including the human animal, that at some point leave home, leave the protection of their parents. And although some of them sometimes do return to the, to the nest, they have to figure out how to um, navigate the dangers in their world. And dying accidentally is um, a huge danger for many um, wild animals. Uh, we found out through our research, um, we did a, a special study on mortality in animals during this time of life, and we found that they are far more likely to um, crash into things, to, to uh, lose their way, to drown, to starve than um, younger animals and older animals. And it's the same thing for human teens. So um, mm. that state of moving into the world without knowing what is out there and without knowing how to handle it is called being predator-naive. That's what animal behaviorists call it. And the, um, the, the first job of any adolescent is to go from predator-naive to uh, predator-aware and then finally to become predator-experienced. And it's only through that experience that you can really be and feel safe in the world. Now, did you find, this is something I'm not sure of, did you find there was a difference in the degree of preparation different species give to their adolescents? That is, because I want us to talk a little bit about how they come to know about the four steps of the predator and things like confusion effect. Like if there's a whole mob of, a whole school of fish, they're safer if they all look exactly alike than if there's one blue one in there. Um, Are these things innate or are they taught? What what would you say about the the kind of protection and the learning? There's a tremendous variation. And, of course, there are some animals that get a lot of parental care, and there are some animals that, you know, uh, the the fish and some reptiles where it's, you know, they they lay the eggs and then they leave, right? That's the, the lay them and leave them species. Although 20 to 30% of fish species, there is some parental care. So in some cases, young animals um, are getting lots and lots of training from their parents, both training in um, how to find food, for example, and, and how to process it. So young meerkats are given this uh, kind of progressive education by their parents and how to, how to eat a scorpion, which if you don't if you don't eat it properly, it can actually kill you. If you, you know, it can sting you, so that's not a good outcome. So there's lots of training 
um, that some parents give. And then uh, on in other cases, there's less, but there's a tremendous the important role of peers in learning to be safe. So we study groups of fish that, um, you know, salmon, for example, wild-caught versus farmed salmon. The wild salmon who have their youngest days, you know, in in waters where there is danger and they're learning about predators, they are not predator-naive when they become adolescents and head out towards the ocean. But some of the farm-caught salmon that we studied, you know, had really no exposure. They were very naive. And so it turns out um, having some experience with danger, but particularly being around peers who are experienced um, can help young animals be safer. And even parents who are there may give more or less um, protection and care to their offspring, depending upon their resources um, and even what's going on in the environment. In some cases, parents give extended parental care to their young. You know, penguins go off as you know young adults and sometimes come back to be fed for an extra season. And in other cases, um, they they don't or they can't. Hmm. Let's let's talk about the correspondence for a moment. So, in terms of whether they learned it from the parents or others, when I when I read about the confusion effect, meaning if everyone looks alike, you're safer from the predator. I start thinking about how hysterical some teens will get if they don't have the clothes exactly like their friends. It has to be the right brand. And so I thought, well, isn't that interesting? In some ways, I wonder if that's kind of a safety from being bullying. Because if you look odd or you look very different, now we know some children choose that, you might be uh, a more easier target for bullying. Um, and so it seemed like, you know, it's really it's really a bid for school uniforms, actually. But um, I, I thought, isn't that an interesting piece um, in terms of the way that kids want to be like everyone else? Do you think that that is a correspondence? Well, it's a it's definitely something that we think is an interesting potential connection. You know, it would be an overstatement to say it's a it's a direct correspondence, but it is mm-hmm. interesting that groups of animals typically we're talking about schools of fish and flocks of birds. They typically like to um, be with other animals that look very much like them or fly like them, and um, and that otherness or what the wildlife biologists call oddness is called the oddity effect can um, single them out for predation and actually put the rest of the group at risk. And so there's a tendency Mm. for um, these groups of animals to reject the odd-looking individuals. Now, whether that has anything to do with the most important cause of bullying among middle school and young high schoolers, which is called appearance-based bullying, um, we can't say for certain, but we certainly think it's worth knowing about the oddity effect and how ancient it is and how widespread it is as well. Hmm. And maybe some component of um, appearance-based bullying relates to the oddity effect. Hmm. One thing you, you, you both write is that you only learn to survive if you come out of protected places. And I start thinking, how safe is the cell phone? Is that really a protected place? I mean, one thing you say at the very beginning of the book is that the whole social media situation in the world on the web is another whole world teens negotiate that animals don't have to yeah it's so interesting because it's um it's in any new world often it's the adolescents that are the um, are the first to move into it and populate it uh, we found that um, explorers tend to be adolescents and um, and there's some places in Antarctica where new New land is actually being created as the um, as the ice melts, and what the scientists who study those um, those areas have 
seen is that it's the it's adolescent penguins that are coming in there to nest because they're looking for new territory. So um, mm. we think it is really interesting that um, that as you said, the online world, the digital world, um, has the is is a is a sort of a new territory for all of us, um, and it not only is the first time in human history that um, adolescents need to navigate the safety, the status, the sex, and the self-reliance um, online, but also in a, in a really interesting way, it kind of makes adolescents of all of us, even us adults who've already been through um, been through our adolescence in um, in real life, we have to figure out anew how to be safe online, how to socialize online, how to communicate sexually online, and also how to um, how to maintain a true um, or you know a true or a perception of ourself, our self reliance online. So, yeah, it's um, it's in the that, that's sort of the more philosophical way of looking at uh, how adolescents and social media have interacted. But we also found some really interesting and very important, useful um, aspects about the the physical neurobiology that happens of comparing ourselves to others online and how social media uh, makes that so much more intense. Absolutely. I I think you talk about that with rank and status. I I absolutely think that that's true. The other question, we're going to have to take a break. The other question that came up to me is I thought, in some ways, the cell phones are protection. I mean, as someone who is a runner, I, I, I've seen too many young women who have been assaulted. And so, A, you learn you don't run alone and or you run with a phone. But in, in a very, you know, real kind of natural physical way. On the other hand, the cell phone does bond you to other kids, but you very often have nonstop messaging from around the world, disasters and trauma. So I wondered if it actually sometimes gives them the frightening piece without giving them the real life experience of dealing with it. It's kind of a difficult world to negotiate. That is such a fascinating um, observation. And um, it it reminds me of something that I heard. um, I heard a scientist talking about one of the problems that we have these days. And there's so much bad news about the climate and, you know, climate change and the climate crisis. And of course we're trying to engage you know, our, our adolescents and, and young adults in, in being productive and doing something about it. But that, that one of the um, unintentional effects of all this negativity is a, is a sense of sort of hopelessness, that without um, a sense that something can be done, it's just a lot of bad news. And um, that's, that's a negative thing that we have to kind of expand that. So um, it's a really interesting idea that, that getting information that about danger is important in nature, but typically that's accompanied by um, some instruction about what to do, what to do about mm-hmm. it. Right, right. We're going to take a brief break. Um, you've been listening to Psych Up Live, and our guests today are Dr. Barbara Nadison Horowitz and journalist Catherine Bowers, and they're the authors of a fascinating new book, Wildhood, The Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals. Stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We all know that today our country is in many ways 
run by vested interests, which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune into All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Very sure has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation, Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Barbara Naderson-Horowitz and journalist Catherine Bowers, and we were just speaking about status, which is, as we know, a very big thing in young people's lives, teens' lives. I was startled to find the amount of rank and status and hierarchy in the animal kingdom, and I was teasing, and I said, I'm coming back as a high-ranking female hyena, because when you read about the role of status, it's pretty dramatic. But let's start with why status is such a big issue. Maybe we'll, we'll compare. First of all, let's ask what's the difference between rank and status. And then maybe you can share what we were talking about, which is the relationship of status and teenagers and mood. Right. So decoding mood is really obviously something that we, we want to be able to do um, as just human beings because, you know, moods affect all of us. But especially during adolescence when moods can dominate um, an, an adolescent's lives and, and it can be really tough for parents to decode what's going on and certainly for the adolescents themselves to understand why they feel the ups and downs that they do. The one really um, important connection is that the part of the brain and the brain um, the, the neurotransmitter network, that, that system that regulates mood in humans, that is, that, that um, creates mood through chemicals and then um, signals moods um, to the individual, is the same system that in other animals is 
um, regulating status. That is, it's detecting when an animal has risen or fallen in status, and it's um, actually um, rewarding or uh, kind of reprimanding that animal with um, chemicals in response to that. So it's the serotonergic system, the, the part of the, the brain that um, the, the brain chemical serotonin um, is highly involved in the signaling of status in animals and in mood in humans. And so that um, led us to uh, make a, some really interesting um, observations about the connection between variation in mood in our species and um, variation in status in other species and even more specifically, that within our species, for humans, um, rising and falling in status, and status is an individual's um, perceived rank um, in the group. So if rank is sort of the absolute level that an individual is on a hierarchy, status would be sort of the, the perception that when, when we rise and fall in status, um, our mood shifts, and so our serotonin is shifting. And so this really suggests that the human experience of mood or the human adolescent experience of mood um, is, is really um, the experience of, of rising and falling in status. And when you think about social media and its connection to mm. um, mood disorders, we know that the more social media an adolescent uses, the more likely she is to have um, adolescent anxiety and depression. Um, and when you think that what, what most of social media is, it's about yep. status and comparing status. Um, it starts to all kind of make sense, the connection between status, mood, animals, humans, and even helps make sense out of um, the rising rates of anxiety and depression in association with social media use today. And, sure. and the reason that this ties into the sort of that life or death feeling, you know, if you've ever watched an eighth grader labor over an Instagram post, you, um, it does sometimes seem like it's a matter of life or death. And uh, mm-hmm. for adolescent animals, it really can be, literally, and that's because for uh, wild animal groups, when you reach higher rank in the group, you get greater access to really important things that help you live, like you have better safety, you get better food, you have access to better territory, and, you know, high-ranking animals in the wild even get better sleep because they don't have to be quite as vigilant or they're not as hungry as the, um, as the lower-ranking animals. Um, for we we found... Um, you know, in one of our in one of our research studies, we um, found that high-ranking lobsters have um, sort of perfect temperature water that they get to swim in, compared to the lower-ranking lobsters that have to be in colder or hotter water. Um, the top-notch salmon they have stronger immune systems, even so. Rank achieved um, as an adolescent can follow an animal throughout its life. It's um, it's not you know it's not that it can never be changed, but it really is an important. Um, safety consideration um, in that age of life, and that's why, um, that's why it's so very, very important for um, when these brain systems that Barbara was describing are coming online that uh, an adolescent has an understanding of where it falls within its social group. Being sorted to the bottom by its peers or by the other animals around it can be very, very, very difficult for an animal, and it's important, we think, for human adolescents to have experiences at every level of that social hierarchy so that they're not always feeling like they're at the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, I want our listeners to know that when when you both describe the story of shrink, which is, uh, you know, a little hyena that's really, he, he's from a low rank because his mother's low rank. The whole idea that we even have as humans that, so if you are born to privileged parents or privileged parent um, you have some privileges and opportunities, and you have rank that 
you acquired by no reason of your own other than that was the luck of the draw. And But what we see is, which is a precious story, is this little hyena, by reason of um, developing friendships and asking people to walk with him and then really pushing for the head hyena to, to really nurture him, he moves up the rank. And then you, you really then start to, it's like a story of hope because you see adolescents sometimes coming from no privilege at all, but they are wonderful at music. They are wonderful at art. They are socially very giving. And in their own way, they start moving up the ranks. Mo- mostly, though, and it goes back to your um, the social media they do better in the real world than just all doing it on social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting if hyenas had social media, what would happen? Yeah. <laughs> Think about it. But, um, yeah. but you know, it's, it's um, such a, I'm so glad you brought this up uh, because, yes, the character, I mean, Shrink was a real a spotted hyena and he did, he indeed was born in this really kind of low position, but he did, through, um, you know, his ability, his social ability and ability to make friends and build social alliances rise. But one really important factor, um, there is that unearned advantages do really um, occur throughout nature and um, adolescent animals, very often their fates are determined by who their parents are, that sort of thing. And yet the environment can make all the difference. In the case of Shrink, he was born in the Nagorogoro Krita in Tanzania where there's lots of resources and um, a great deal of prey. And so he, it, that, that even though he had some adverse circumstances to his birth because he was born in that um, wonderful environment, he was able to thrive. And in other environments, um, the Serengeti where the spotted hyenas um, have fewer resources, it would have been harder for him to have such a good outcome. And I think the lesson for our species is that, you know, certainly privilege is something that we're talking a lot about and keeping in mind that creating enriched environments uh, for all of our adolescents is, is really the way to go. Mm. The one thing I wanted to mention also that you meant that you both focus on for parents is to understand the need to play. This is from childhood, I think, up and understanding that that really has to do about learning dominance and submission. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we found that um, many, many animals need the sort of rough-and-tumble physical contact of play not only to um, be able to uh, communicate socially later in life, but also to communicate um, sexual desire and um, and identity later in life as well. And, um, again, this is where we, we, as we're drawing connections to human teens and human development, we think it's very important for um, for adolescents to have these social experiences in order to practice um, when they are, you know, w- when they're dominant, when they're um, when they're not dominant. Practice leading a group, practice allowing somebody else to be the leader, not always being um, at the top of every group, and definitely not always being sorted at the bottom. Um, Absolutely, and, you know. Again, what. Part of what we do, part of what Barbara and I do in our work is we look to the natural world to find solutions for human issues. And it's um, kind of generally called bio-inspiration, getting inspired by um, by what nature through evolution has kind of per, um, you know, fi- figured out over um, hundreds of millions of years. And if we think about looking to um, a- animal um, models for uh, ideas for how to create better societies and better individuals, um, you know, safer, more socially um, 
happy uh, situations, that that's one thing we can do is just to see that a- animals do better when they have these social experiences younger, um, like dur- during adolescence. Mm. Well, let's move on to sexuality. One thing I loved about this whole section was your underscoring that coming into puberty didn't equate to mating, suddenly mating. You said something like during wildhood, humans and animals need to balance desire and inhibition by really being able to interpret the language of courtship. Maybe you can speak about that because I think that's important, so important with our teens and as we see also with these animals. Yes, it was um, really remarkable to learn that in nature, animals go through puberty, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they immediately start having sex and offspring, that there is um, a kind of a so a waiting period, it's sort of an air-quoted a waiting period um, for a variety of reasons, and it differs for each species, um, between the time their bodies can make young and the, the time that they actually start doing that. So that was fascinating and um, certainly has applications to our species. Uh, one of the interesting yeah, I think I had... Go ahead. Sure, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Um, I, I had always sort of thought that if an animal, um, that, that animals just kind of grew up and then just knew exactly how to um, get together and start reproducing. And um, it was absolutely fascinating to really take a look uh, at what, um, what biologists and, and behaviorists call courtship rituals. And, you know, mm. you've seen them a thousand times on nature documentaries where uh, a bird will lift a wing and then the other bird lifts a wing. Or, um, you know, even, even fruit flies have these, and, and yes. moths and butterflies have these beautiful, poetic, complicated, nuanced ways of expressing that they are um, looking for a partner and sort of in the mood or able to receive the desire of another. And to think about this this behavior that spans um, you know, fish and birds and blue whales and um, people, it really is um, important to, to think about what, why that behavior is seen so widely across species um, and how it has enabled animals to um, find find partners, find willing partners, and also to establish establish the idea of sexual consent between two partners. Um, again, here here on planet Earth, the the, the seeds of, of consent and um, and expression are are right there in our connection with other animals. It was so just what you're saying. It was so startling to to read about the animals having a partner preference and what you call I don't know how to pronounce the word the sort of the look of love this this looking at each other and wishing one of them would initiate something and waiting for that as part of of initiating connection. We have we've done shows on consent stories with teen no well, the college students mm-hmm. and. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about that. You know, with the hookup generation, yes. there's not enough dating. And so yes. what you just exactly said for the animals in terms of waiting and knowing and offering an invitation and feeling privileged to consent or to say no, we, we, we really could use some help with it in, in terms of our teens. I think yes. many of them would be eager for this. 
We teach a course at Harvard called Coming of Age on Planet Earth. And okay. um, we, one of the sections that we, we look at is consent and coercion. And we specifically, and this is a very big campus conversation, I mean, not just on, on college campuses and high school campuses as well. Mm. And we, do a, we, we really dissect what does it mean to have, what does consent even mean? And um, we break it down and then we actually sort of analyze human consent um, through the lens of an animal biologist, and um, we look at courtship, animal courtship, which is this back and forth um, conversation between two animals, which is a, you know, should we or shouldn't we? Is it going to happen or not? And it's, it can go on. There can be, you know, hundreds of, of steps of, of parts of this conversation. And so instead of thinking about human consent, the way it often is portrayed as sort of a question or two, um, with a, in some cases, almost like a checkbox um, Instead of thinking about it in that way, understanding it in a, in a broader way across species as a kind of lifelong learning about listening to what um, others are telling you and learning to effectively express exactly um, what you're interested in. That's, we think, a powerful lesson about sexuality um, from animals. Oh, and it's I, so interesting because to, to learn about how these young animals, how adolescents learn how um, how to have that conversation? They're not necessarily born knowing how to do it, and they don't know how to do it when they when they first try. And so there's there's you know fumbling and missed signals and missed opportunities and um, and so one way that they learn is they practice with one another with their same age peers, and um, there's a certain sort of um, t- I don't know t- tenderness and forgiveness that I can think of in those early. Um, encounters that that some of these uh, younger animals might be having with one another. But then another way that they learn is that they watch the adults in their lives. And again, I'm not talking about watching watching the actual act of mating. We're talking about the the thousands of those of the subtleties and what Barbara was saying, the back and forth, the continual conversation of how mature, um, c- caring, careful adults relate to one another in mature sexual situations um, and, you know, tre- treat one another with kindness and respect. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to think of, um, you, you know, a, a meerkat uh, observing the adults around it as much <laughs> as, a, as a human um, <laughs> watching the adults around them. And, you know, as humans, we have so many different ways of, of watching this kind of um, activity, whether it's on social media, like we were talking about earlier, or the stories that we tell um, tell ourselves on television or um, through novels or plays or through social media, through marketing. There's just many, many ways that young people get messages about um, positive and negative ways of communicating their own sexuality and learning how to accept the desire of others. Right. So if somebody sits next to you in class every week and then brings you coffee that's very different, and you want to interpret what you feel about that than meeting someone when you've had too much to drink at a frat party and somebody's groping you. Those are very different, very different scenes. So it's just the, the steps. It, that's, what, that's what is beautiful about the book because it's almost shocking to realize how subtle and how, I mean, Salt was, was the, the whale. There were many, many contenders wanting to court with her. But they had to keep up with her pace, and she seemed, she eventually chooses who she wants. I mean, when you read it as you have 
portrayed it in the book, it hits you. It really does hit you. Uh, such a nice way of saying that it doesn't mean puberty sex, you're there. Not necessarily at all. There's just a lot in between that maybe mm-hmm. we don't help our, our youngsters enough with. Um, we're going to take a break. Mm-hmm. And when we come back, we're going to talk about self-reliance um, and how does that really happen and how do we foster that in teens and how animals foster it. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Barbara Naderson, Horowitz, and Catherine Bowers. They're the authors of an interesting new book, Wildhood, The Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Beauty is always a reflection of how we are taking care of ourselves from the inside, and our business is no different. Building your business brand is a direct reflection of you. In today's competitive landscape, personal and proven leadership skills can ensure that our brands and businesses succeed. Join host Bonnie Bonadeo and visionary guest experts to help you find success. Tune into beautiful brands inside and out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're here with the authors of Wildhood, the epic journey from adolescence to adulthood in humans and other animals, Barbara Nadison Horowitz and Catherine Bowers. Now, in their book, they talked of the four challenges that your teen at home and 
a whale might have in this stage of adolescence. And so far, we've talked about safety and we've talked about status and the impact of that even neurophysiologically. And we just talked about sexuality. And now the final challenge is self-reliance. And in, in writing this section, you talk about dispersal. This is the point at which the teen or the young adult and or the, the adolescent animal is out there on their own. So what are the things that they have to do? What, um, what makes this even possible to, to meet this challenge? Well, the, um, you know, the, the tasks are remarkably similar across a wide range of species. And it's essentially learning how to feed yourself and learning how to find your way in the world, finding a place to live and getting to the point where you have independence. And it, the specifics vary, but it's pretty fundamental that until you learn how to be what's called nutritionally independent, you aren't really um, an animal adult. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. tell this, um, this part of our book through the story of a European wolf named Slavic, who uh, takes off one day on, on his journey of discovery. Um, it's, his, it's his time to, uh, to what biologists call disperse. So he leaves home and he almost starves to death and um, almost drowns, almost, gets lost. He almost d- dies of loneliness until finally he, he makes it to, uh, um, to a, a new forest just outside Verona and he meets a, a female wolf and they, uh, they end up having a, he finds a new home and, and his new family there. Um, but it's really interesting to think about what, um, what animals need to know when they leave their parental, when they leave parental care. And um, at, the, at the beginning of, of our discussion with you, we were talking about the difference between what a penguin does, where it just jumps in the water and swims away, and say a, a wolf, like this wolf Slavic. He had um, almost two years, about 18 months, uh, with his family, with his pack, before he left. So he, was, he had siblings that he was socializing with, and um, he had his uh, his parents who were showing him the ropes and how to find prey. And uh, even this was really interesting. One of the most dangerous parts of being a young animal in the in the wild now is coming across roads, human roads with traffic on them. And we talked mm. to the scientist who was the one who had radio collared this wolf Slavic and knew him very well. And he said that his pack would have taught him how to safely cross over highways in order not to get hit by cars on his journey. Mm. And that's an advantage that Slavic would have had uh, versus some other animal that didn't have that kind of um, mammalian training ahead of time to learn how to cross roads. So um, par- parents and, and packs and peers play a lot of, um, play a huge role in preparing youngsters to go out into the world, um, knowing the things that they need to know to stay safe and um, become self-reliant. This is the point where I started thinking that we hadn't spoken yet about the parental anxiety that goes with launching mm-hmm. a teen or an animal, except then I saw it because the biologist, I think at one point, does can't can't pick up where Slavic is with the GPS or whatever kind of marker he's on. And I thought, oh, that's exactly what happened with when one of my sons went to Europe and all of a sudden, no more emails, no more text. I'm, of course, hysterical. My husband's saying they're fine. And finally, then, 
They send a picture. They're jumping through caves. I don't have to tell you if you had young adults. (laughs) But I thought, well, that's a a human parent is in these stories, all of you who are studying them because you're worried about them. And we don't actually have these animals arguing with each other. Is she ready? Is he ready? Should they go? I mean, but on the other hand, kids are wonderful. They sort of let us know they're going. (laughs) And... And if they've had what this little wolf has, they make it. Somehow they magically make it. Or maybe not so magically because it was remarkable how well he did, this little wolf. So you talk about this. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also a very sweet um, part of the story is how many... How many of the, the European folks who in that region um, who knew about his journey were rooting for him and were um, were kind of looking out for him um, because there was a lot of concern about him being hit by a car or you know by by or being shot by you know someone who was you know was was worried about having a wolf around but that kind yeah. of that kind of collective protection of this adolescent was very enduring. Yeah, and the, um, the scientists who study this kind of behavior they call it post release monitoring where they can. Um, you know, if if they're scientifically studying an animal and they have a, a tracker on it, then they can they can monitor uh, where it is, much the way a parent might wish they could as their child is out in the world. Um, but we also found that uh, that parent offspring conflict increases around this time of leaving home, and we were really curious about that because wh- why would um, you know we 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 we're trying to figure out what. You know, why, why that would happen at this exact moment of going out into the world. And uh, what we found was that um, in some cases, it is um, a parent trying to uh, encourage uh, its offspring to leave home. But in other cases, it was actually a, a byproduct of a kind of parent-offspring learning that was happening. So mm. we, we found these um, these eagles in the Spanish Imperial Eagles where they... They need to. They leave. They need to be on their own and have left the nest before they actually know how to fly and catch um, catch their prey. So it's a very strange position for them to be in. Their parents are no longer feeding them, but mm-hmm. they also don't yet know how to fly well enough in order to catch prey. And um, what we saw was um, something the scientists called parental meanness, where the um, the parents would fly at their offspring with um, in this sort of like attack mode. But what they were getting them to do was learn how to fly better. They weren't trying to get them to leave. They were actually trying to help them fly. Uh, so it, it was just a really interesting way of flipping the idea of parent-offspring conflict that many um, parents might feel around mm-hmm. this age and seeing what's, what's really going on underneath us. What, 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 is, what is the source of that conflict? What's going on there? Well, that's why I really loved when you tied this in and said, in t- as of 2016, more 18 to 34-year-olds are living with parents than with a partner, and that this does not equate to the failure to launch, but rather practice dispersals coming and going back from, from the house, recognizing this is a very different and difficult culture in terms of jobs, in terms of um, opportunity to see the world and maybe learn and come back and developing the kind of grit that you both talk about a young person, whether they're an animal or um, a human, need to kind of make it. So I, I really think people can start to feel terrible about themselves or their children because they're, they happen not to be 
at age at 19 married and living somewhere. I, I think that that's not the way we need to see this at all. Yeah, that's such a good point. We've talked to lots of parents who feel embarrassed about the fact that they're they're young adults, you know, have finished college and maybe are are not completely independent. And mm-hmm. um, you know, the fact that that's actually more of a <laughs> that 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 not being completely um, and fully independent uh, is 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 rather natural. We can just use that word in a kind of literal sense, and that that's a process. It's not a it's not a light switch. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this. At this point, if you were to give, based on all of the stages that we've touched, if you were to give our our parents, our listeners, our educators, our coaches out there, what would be your take-home message? What have you been inspired to understand about our teens from all this wonderful work you've done for five years with animals? Um, this is Barbara. I'll start with the first um the first is just how how vulnerable um, human adolescents are, and adolescents, you know, cross species. It's it's a very very uh, period where they can be um, exploited um, pretty easily. They are, you know, predator naive, as Catherine said, and that puts them in a in a dangerous position. But we can help them by um, recognizing that gaining experience um, makes them safer, and helping them to gain the necessary experience is really an important part of being a good parent. And then the other, um, there's so many, so many pieces to this, but um, the other piece of it is just to um, begin to understand the origin of our, of our moods, of, of why we feel happy and sad, and that there is a, an animal basis for that, and beginning to sort of um, step back and, and try to be a more of an observer, um, even while we're experiencing them, that, that can be useful. But, but finally, um, to me as a parent, the piece of this that's all been um, the most illuminating is how flexible um, animal parents are in the wild, that environments change and every offspring is different in terms of its abilities and characteristics and parental um, decisions are flexible as well and they respond to those things. So it's not, you know, one way for one species parents there's flexibility. And I, uh, I concur with everything Barbara just said for, for me. This is Catherine. For me, um, the main sort of take-home for me was don't panic. Uh, adolescence isn't some burden to be endured or some disease to be treated or some phase of life to be avoided. It's, uh, it's, it has an evolutionary purpose, and um, it's, uh, it's something that to be, in, to be engaged with, whether you are an adolescent or a parent, and then also... Um, getting to what Barbara was saying about um, the collective responsibility that we as adults have to the, uh, the vulnerability, the volatility, and the, um, and the potential of, um, of the adolescents in our lives, that we, we all have a responsibility to um, make sure that they are learning about safety, status, sex, and self-reliance. Okay. Thank you so much. I want to thank you both for coming on. How could pe- Really quickly, how can people find this book and your earlier book? So this book, sorry, go ahead, Barbara. No, no. Um, So our our first book, Zubiquity, um, and this book, Wildhood, they're both available wherever books are sold, um, on Amazon or independent bookstores or anywhere else um, that books are available. Okay. And on my website, uh, wildhood.com, there are some videos of adolescent animals um, doing some of the things we talked about today, trying um, trying to court and trying to... You know, do all, do all kinds of things and kind of being fumbly about it. So people are interested in looking at wild animal adolescence in action. Wildhood.com is where they can find some videos. 
Perfect, Barbara. Thank you both, Barbara and Catherine, for joining me today. Your book and your work is such a wonderful contribution. I'm really very grateful that you came on as guests. I want to thank my listeners. I want to remind you that you can hear any show that we do as a podcast by 6 p.m. tonight. This will be a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Google Play, Spotify, you name it, and it'll be there. It'll be something you can listen to again or share at any time. Drop me a comment or question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly, until next week, take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.